and let's read God's Word together. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell down on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And had has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come to worship you by reading your word and by seeking to understand, God, what is your inspired word to us. We've been reading through the gospel of Mark. We've been studying the story of Jesus. We've been learning about the disciples. And Father, we lay in front of you this unique story about this failed attempt at exorcism. And we ask that you give us eyes to see, hearts to understand, so that we might know you more and walk in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled the message today, Power Outage, the story of a failed exorcism and what it can teach us about faith and the Christian life. Have you ever had a big public failure? Maybe in the words of today, an epic fail. The story that we have in front of us today is, in a sense, an epic failure. 
It's really unique in the Gospels because we're not told a, a, a single other story of a failed exorcism. And so the question is, why this story? And when we take a look at the, the stories of Jesus, so Mark is one of the four Gospels where we learn the story of Jesus, but the story of Jesus also is teaching us about the story of the disciples. There's a sense in, in that while each of the Gospels centers in on Jesus, they are also a story of the education of Jesus' twelve and about their growth process. And what we learn is that it's pretty messy. And then it's not just straightforward. And so we see at times the disciples' great faith, and then we see at times them crash and burn. And so we have a story of a public failure here in front of us. I remember in my own life, I don't know if you could think of a big fail that you've had, and I don't mean like you crashed on your bike. Uh, I'm talking about when what you know to be true and how you live has a massive failure in, in actually what you do. I'll never forget, and some of you who've been at River of Life for a while have heard this story. I was in university, I was a religion major. And I was getting ready, I think, I don't know if it was my, very, my last semester or my second to last semester, but in the, the U.S. kind of university system, I don't know how it works uh, in all of the, the university systems throughout the world, but I had what's kind of a guidance counselor or a, a counselor, and I had to run by my, my classes uh, to him every semester, and he had to sign off. And the reason was is that he had to make sure that I was moving towards my degree, that I was taking the necessary classes that I needed if I was going to graduate. Now, by the time you're in your fourth year of university, you're kind of thinking, I know what classes I have to take. If I don't know by now, I won't graduate on time. So in my super spirituality, I decided that I didn't need my counselor's signature, Harvey Hartman. And despite the fact that I was an aspiring minister and in the religion department, I figured, why not just sign his signature myself? Which I thought, no harm, no foul. I, if I go to him, I waste his time and my time because we both know the four classes I want to take. I'm not going in another semester and I'm not paying extra money. I'm taking the classes I need to graduate. So I, with that decision, walked to the registrar's office, and I was quietly waiting in line, had my ball cap on, wasn't paying any attention. Harvey Hartman walks by, and I'm thinking, oh, no. Turn in to the wall, pull your cap down, and hope Harvey doesn't see. But Harvey had eyes in the back of his head. Harvey turned around, and I'll never forget, he looked straight at me, and I knew that he knew. He grabbed the sheet from my hand. He looked at his signature. He asked me if I had forged a signature, to which I had, to, in front of the entire line standing there, confess, I have lied and I have forged your signature. He signed the paper. He gave it back to me. And he showed an amazing amount of grace. And he said, here, why shouldn't we make this official? And he walked away. Harvey could have 
pursued that. He could have, I don't think they would have not let me graduate. But I certainly could have been reprimanded. I certainly could have received punishment for what I did. What an epic failure for somebody who's aspiring to want to teach and preach God's word that you would have such a basic lapse. Have you had moments like that? Moments where you, you know the truth, but you kind of cheat on your faith? I don't know exactly what was taking place in the life of the disciples, but Mark records for us this morning a story where the disciples have an epic public failure. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to dive down deeper into the story. Because we know that the scripture doesn't tell us stories of failure. This is not like YouTube, where the whole point of posting a failure when somebody uh, crashes or has an embarrassing moment is just to watch and laugh. We know that we have the story in our hands so that we can watch and learn. And so we want to take a look at this scripture this morning and we want to ask the question, why is it that Mark is going to tell us the story of the disciples' failure to cast out this demon? And specifically what we want to see, and we want to turn this story because it's really not a story about failure. It's much more a story about what does God want us to learn about faith. And what we're going to walk away with this morning is we're going to take a look at, we're going to look at Jesus very specifically. We're going to look at the conversations going on in this passage. We're going to look at five phrases and we're going to look at five principles that we can walk away with about faith, all right? So if we're going to kind of guide you, we're going to look at five phrases from this passage. We're going to look at the dialogue. We're going to look at five principles that we can draw about faith. And here is our overview for today. We're going to zoom in on these specific phrases. Verse 18, they were not able. We want to examine the scene. We want to see what's going on in this story of this father telling Jesus, your disciples aren't able to cast out this demon. We're going to take a look at verse 19, Jesus' response, where he says, Oh, faithless generation. Jesus was genuinely disappointed with the faith of his disciples. We're going to take a look at verse 23, where Jesus says emphatically, if you can, to the Father who says, hey, have compassion on us. If you can do anything, please help us. Jesus is going to respond with an exclamation, if you can. And we're going to see that Jesus doesn't have any limitations when it comes to exercising his authority. In verse 24, we're going to talk about this, help my unbelief. This is the response of the Father to Jesus. And lastly, in verse 29, we're going to talk about this phrase that Jesus says, only by prayer. This kind comes out only by prayer. All right? Five phrases, five principles that we're going to walk through today. We want to take a look and see this is not a story where we glory in their failure. It's a story about how we might learn about faith. So let's begin with this first phrase. Let's begin in uh, verse 18, and it says, they were not able. So let's just quickly examine the scene. For those of you who are just joining us today, uh, no, I normally don't preach about exorcisms. This is where we are in the text. Uh, And what you have missed was last week was what we call the transfiguration, 
where Jesus takes his uh, three closest disciples. He takes uh, Peter and James and John, and he takes them up to a high mountain. And in front of them, that Jesus be, reveals his glory. It's what we call the transfiguration. And so what we don't understand is that literally, Jesus and his three are walking down the mountain. And so we have three coming from, in a sense, a mountaintop experience. And they walk down into the city, and what they find in the village is a massive argument. We have the crowds, and we have Jesus' disciples, and you see in the text that Jesus walks up, and he says, what are you arguing about? And immediately the first person who steps in and answers is the father. And the father says, I brought my son to your disciples to see if they could cast out this demon. And he says, they were not able. And so what you're going to immediately see is Jesus comes in and he will take control of this situation. But I want to zoom in on what happens on this this idea of they were not able. Now, if you know the story of Jesus and his disciples or you've been following us in Mark, the first thing that should come as a surprise to us is this fact that they were not able Because if you rewind back a few chapters, and if you know the story of Jesus and his disciples, is that Jesus actually goes on a mountain, he prays, he appoints 12 apostles who would come with him, be with him, and that he gave his authority to visit the surrounding villages, to proclaim the kingdom, and to cast out demons. And so it kind of should come, you know, like a a screeching stop. The record all of a sudden scrapes against here because when it says your disciples couldn't, well, this is the one thing we actually knew that Jesus gave the authority to do. And so we should kind of be shocked by this. And this is probably the reason Mark tells us this story. But we see they were not able, and one of the first things I just want to point out when we come to this text and look at this first phrase is this. When we look to the fact that they're not able, three things should be really clear to us. And it should be clear that casting out demons in Jesus' name is not guaranteed, even for Jesus' disciples. It's not guaranteed. Secondly, casting out demons is not a formula. So I don't know exactly what they did before. We know that specifically when Jesus sent them on his mission and Jesus gave them the authority to cast out demons. And if you're new to us, uh, what is all this talk about casting out demons? It's very simple. When Jesus came to earth, one of the most profound things that he did to reveal who he was and to show that he had the power to bring about his kingdom was that literally good takes on evil and everywhere that Jesus goes, we, be, we see that Jesus begins to heal and that he has the authority to attack the strongholds that exist in our world, the, the, the specific, uh, let's say, individuals where we see that there was demon possession. Now, not every single person who had a, an ailment or a disease was demon-possessed. The Bible is very clear about this. A few chapters before this, we hear the story of, uh, of a, a person who is mute that is healed and has nothing to do with demon possession. So there's not demon possession everywhere. But when it comes to the Scriptures, 
The scriptures are quite clear that when Jesus comes and he uh, begins to reveal that God has sent him to proclaim salvation and, and he announces the kingdom, what would you expect the king who is proclaiming his kingdom to be able to do? That he should have the power and the authority to actually enforce it. This is what we see Jesus doing. And this is what he gives his disciples the power to do because he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom. But what we see here is, one, it's not guaranteed. Two, it's not a formula. So they simply couldn't simply do what they did before. And the third thing was we see in this initial verse, or this initial passage, that power doesn't come from within us. The disciples don't have the power within them. If they had the power within them, they could exercise their own power and cast out the demon. But it's very clear they're dependent on someone else. Namely, God. So three things I just want to point out as we study this text. One, it's absolutely clear. Casting out demons is not a guarantee. right? So all of us who are believers don't just simply walk around the city thinking we're tackling the stronghold of Satan and saying, I am casting out demons in Jesus' name. It doesn't really work like that according to this passage. It's not a formula. It doesn't come from within us. Okay, now, having pointed out those three things, here's what I want us to consider. So why, if these are Jesus' own disciples, why did God not allow the demon to be cast out? Why? So Jesus is going to point us to two things in this passage, and I think this is the reason for the story. Jesus is going to point to specifically, spoiler alert, close your eyes or close your ears. Your eyes, I think you still might hear. Uh, if, you don't, if you want to find out at the end, Jesus is going to point to faith and prayer as two specific things that were lacking in this story. So, we're asking the question, why? And Jesus is going to point to faith and prayer. Now, let's take a look at that second phrase, and then we're going to start to look at some principles that we can learn. Let's look at the second phrase in verse 19. O faithless generation. So Jesus answers them. He says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. So the first words out of Jesus' mouth is faithless generation. In a sense, Jesus is diagnosing the problem already. And the problem is that there is a lack of faith. Jesus immediately responds that they're a faithless generation. And his words reveal, as I mentioned earlier, his bitter disappointment and the disciples' little faith. And in fact, their little faith is going to lead to an inability to cast out this demon. Now, we need to make clear, we don't know exactly what Jesus was referring to by saying they had little faith. So was it the fact that they were surprised? They were just hanging out in the village. Maybe they're going to the market. And this father immediately comes up. They're thinking, Jesus isn't here. James is not here. Peter's not here. John's not here. All of a sudden, have you ever been unprepared for something? And, and somebody asks you, and, and, and off the cuff, you don't know how to respond or how to act? So it, was it like this? Were they surprised? I didn't even think if Jesus wasn't here, somebody would bring a son to us and say, can you cast out this demon? So were they surprised and unprepared? I don't know. Were they the exact opposite? Were they overly confident and thinking, we've done this before? We can do it again. 
I've casted out demons in this village, in that village, everywhere I went, and I used the name Jesus. I simply spoke, and it happened. Were they overly confident? I don't know. Were they confused and doubting? Back up before the story of the transfiguration, and we, and we have the story of Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, and then immediately telling them that the Messiah is going to suffer and die, and the disciples can't process it. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, don't talk like that. And Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. He says, Peter, you're, the, you're not focusing on the things of God. So are they still, I mean, and by the way, that was only six days ago. So from the, the, the time where, Jesus, uh, where Peter confesses the Messiah, and then the, the transfiguration was six days. We know that from the last passage. So now they walk down the mountain, maybe at a seventh. Maybe they spent the night in the mountain. I don't know. We're talking a week. Are, are they still discouraged, confused, and trying to process, I don't even know anymore. I don't know what's true. I don't know what's up or down. We just confessed Jesus is the Christ, and he told us he's going to die. Is that what's wrong with their faith? So I don't know, but I know the diagnosis that Jesus gave. He says, O ye of little faith, or, or faithless generation. So this is the first point that I want us to look, to look at, the first faith principle And that is that God works through faith. Jesus was looking for faith. It's no secret. If you read the Gospels, everywhere we look where Jesus is interacting with people, he's looking for faith. It's no secret what Jesus is looking for from us. He's looking for faith. He's looking for those who hear his message and who hear Jesus' revelation about who he is and see his miracles that would trust and believe in him. In fact, let me give you just a few examples. So in Mark 5, 33 and 34, remember the woman who suffered from this chronic bleeding? And she sees Jesus in the crowd and she just wants to walk by and touch the hem of his robe. I don't, I don't, I'm afraid to talk with him. The crowd's big. I'm just going to walk by. And she's healed. And what does Jesus say? It says, But the woman, not knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the truth. Remember, Jesus says, Who touched me? What did Jesus say? He says to her, daughter, your what has made you well? Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In Luke 7, we have the story of a woman. It, just, it says there's a woman who was a sinner or a great sinner. We, uh, we think Luke is basically using a nice word for saying this woman was a prostitute and everybody knew it. But it says there's a woman who is a sinner who comes and falls at Jesus' feet while he's having a meal. She anoints his feet with oil and she uses her own hair and washes her feet. And the people around Jesus are, they're incensed that Jesus would allow this to happen. What did Jesus say in that situation? Jesus told the woman, he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Remember the centurion? The centurion who comes to Jesus and said, listen, Jesus, I I need you to heal my son. And he says, I command soldiers. They basically, they listen to my voice and they do what I say. He says, I understand you have authority. I'm coming to you and I know that if you say it, it will be done. And he is asking Jesus to basically heal from afar. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says in Matthew 8, verse 10, he says, Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. In verse 13, he says to the centurion, go, 
Let it be done for you as you have believed. Talking about faith. So everywhere we go, we know what Jesus is looking for. We know that Jesus is looking for faith. In fact, if I were just kind of the fast forward out of the Gospels, we all know this text, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What is the whole Christian life? Faith. In fact, we can't even begin to honor God unless we respond to him, believing what he says about himself and believing his promises. In fact, so Jesus, God doesn't only just work through faith. We can say that God is pleased by faith. And how could we not forget or point to Ephesians where we see that we're saved through faith? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one would boast. So the first principle I want you to see is that God works through faith. And this is apparently what was lacking in this situation. God is, Jesus is constantly looking for faith. The entire Christian life is, is walked out in faith, according to Hebrews. In fact, so from beginning to end, we're saved. Our journey begins with Jesus in faith. And each and every day, we walk in faith. So God works through our faith. Let's look at the third phrase. I want to look at verse 23. This is where Jesus expresses, in a sense, a surprise. If your version has, you know, uh, the original uh, Greek text doesn't have punctuation, if your English version or whatever language you're reading has punctuation, it probably has an exclamation point here. Because it says, if you can, so if you can, right? So it says, Jesus said to him, if you can, and then he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Verse 24, it says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So looking at Jesus' reaction, I simply want to point out the second faith principle, and this comes from Jesus' own mouth. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. So this is straight out of the text. All things are possible for the one who believes. Now let's take a look at this idea, if you can. And we we need to make sure we understand this passage correctly. So, can. Can talks about ability. When you you use the English word can, it's, it's talking about ability or inability. And the first thing that we know about God is that God doesn't lack in ability. God is all-powerful. God has all authority. And so when Jesus responds to him, what he's basically responding out of is, this is basic theology. If you can, are we talking about God? Because God has all authority. God has all power. And so we then If that is true, if that is who God is, then it's not a question of ability because God is able. It's a question of something else. All things are possible for the one who believes. And if God is all-powerful, that means all things are possible. Does everybody see that simple correlation? The principle of faith is all things are possible for those who believe. That's directly out of the text this morning. And the, the reason for that truth is not simply because if we believe something enough, it comes true. 
Have you tried that in normal life? Have you really wanted something to think, if I just believe enough, it'll come true? Maybe it has for you, maybe it hasn't. But here's the reality. The reason that doesn't work out much of the time, because if you're not all-powerful and you don't control all things and you don't have all authority, it's impossible for you to simply wish things or pray things into existence apart from an amazing, good, loving, all-powerful God who exists. So all things are possible for the one who believes. It's not a matter of ability, but I need to combine the second principle of all things are possible with a principle number three, and you need to marry these together. Because can does not equal must. Can does not equal must. Did you read that it doesn't say all things will be given to the one who believes? It says all things are possible. There's a huge difference. Faith principle number three is can does not equal must. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, what I mean is, very specifically, it doesn't say all things will be given to you. And that's a key difference. What I'm saying is that what is God glorifying and what is for your good, right? Cameron shared a testimony today that the last two or three years have been unbelievably hard. Cameron, do you ever pray during that? This is not planned. Do you ever pray during that time that God would take some of those challenges away? Were you ever frustrated by the fact that God didn't answer that prayer that moment or the next day or the day after? Uh, I'm sure we can all relate, right? That there's been times where we've prayed and God has not answered that prayer. And if all things are possible for the one who believes, then what gives? Isn't that contradictory? All things are possible for the one who believes. Yet, how many of us have experienced, especially in the midst of suffering, that God does not answer our prayers the way that we have prayed? And we think, I have prayed in faith. So what gives? And what gives is the fact that what glorifies God and what is ultimately for your good is not always what you want. So principle number two is can does not equal must. Now, you think, Sam, that's a pretty bold statement for you to make. Well, I say that because I can back it up with scriptures. The scriptures clearly teach that we do not simply receive whatever we ask for. For example, let me give you a figure from the scriptures right before Jesus that I know for a fact you can agree with. John the Baptist. John the Baptist preaching and teaching the kingdom, preparing the way for Jesus. In fact, the scriptures tell that there was no one born of a woman who was greater than John the Baptist. So from my understanding, there was no one here today, no one in the future, that would bring as much glory to God as John the Baptist in in his ministry. John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded. Do you think at any point in time that John or his disciples prayed for John's freedom or deliverance? Did God answer those prayers? No. God didn't answer probably how they thought the story would go, right? If John the Baptist is Jesus' forerunner, wouldn't it be best if John the Baptist could preach and teach and keep running in his ministry? Wouldn't it be best for John to keep being out there in the desert baptizing people? That's how my mind would think. 
That's what my prayers would be. For God to spare John's life, for God to put John back in the desert, for John to be out there preaching a a baptism of repentance so that more and more people might know and respond to Jesus and be prepared. God didn't spare his life. Was something fundamentally wrong? Did John not believe? Did John not believe in the promise that all things are possible for those who believe? No. Do you remember Jesus in the garden? Remember that Jesus... and before he's crucified, prays and says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But he says a key word there that is going to help us understand, because Jesus says, but not my will, but yours. So you think if Jesus just believed hard enough or Jesus prayed hard enough, that God would somehow provide another way of salvation where Jesus didn't have to die? No, there was no other way. The way for salvation to be given to you and me was that a perfect sacrifice would be offered and that meant that Jesus laid down his life and he willingly gave up his want. God, I don't want for for me to experience separation from you by taking the sins of the world upon me. But he did it because he clearly submitted to God's will. In fact, I'll give you a very specific example where it's much more clear in the text. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 5 through 10, this is the classic passage of Paul's thorn in the flesh, but I'll read you the whole passage just to prove this point that can does not equal must. 2 Corinthians 12, 5 through 10, Paul has, has shared that he's had visions, heavenly visions. And when we begin this passage, he was saying, he doesn't want to boast or the, the, uh, he doesn't want to glory in those or, or basically take pride in those. He says, on behalf of this man, Paul's talking about himself, he says, I will boast, but on, behalf of, uh, uh, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except on my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would be, not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one would think of me more than he sees or more than he hears from me. So that's a bit, little bit of the background. He says, so to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. It, it seems like some kind of physical ailment. And look how Paul responded to this. He says, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me. But He said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Did God answer Paul's belief and his pleading three times? To remove this. Did you think Paul believed that God could actually remove this thorn in the flesh? He did. Did God answer? He didn't. Can does not equal a must. And the reason I say that is because if you only take this faith principle, all things are possible for the one who believes, and you take that promise, it means everything I pray for, everything I want, if I believe it enough, that I will get what I pray for. And I will not experience sickness, I will not experience harm, or neither will those around me then you are fundamentally writing your own gospel because it's not in the scriptures. And if you have been taught that, let me just show you from scripture, not me versus them. Jesus 
said, all things are possible for the one who believes, and I could also show you from Scripture that can does not equal a must. You have to marry those two principles. If you walk out this t- today and you only take the first, you're taking a partial truth. And I need you not to misapply. That's a dangerous misapplication that will lead you down a path of health, wealth, prosperity, and blessing. And that is simply not the true gospel. Let's look at the fourth phrase. Help my unbelief. I'll make this really simple because I'm looking at time. Here's the beauty. If Jesus diagnosed faith as the issue, notice the response of the father. Immediately the father cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Did anybody see the contradiction there? I believe, help my unbelief. Here's the truth. It's an honest confession because it's you and me. Are we not all there? Do we not all believe but recognize, God, help my unbelief because I also struggle? That they're at war within me is this person who believes one day and struggles the next? Who prays and trusts God's promises one season of life? But when things take a turn, that your faith struggles? Have you not had those seasons where you, your faith that you thought was so strong begins to really crumble under the pressure when nothing goes your way? Have you had a season like that? This is the beauty of this father because he simply says in a very succinct way something that I think is true of all of us and that is, I believe, but God help my unbelief. Here's the beautiful principle that we can take away. God will help our unbelief. Now that's a promise you can take to the bank. God will forgive every single sin that you bring and confess. God will answer your prayers when you need wisdom. We know that from James. And when our hearts are struggling and we need God's help to hold on to his promises because everything inside of us feels like our world is falling apart. And God, I know this is true, but man, I feel like it's slipping through my hands and I need you to help me hold on to the promises. God answers that confession and God answers that prayer 100% of the time. So while can doesn't equal a must, if you come and you confess and say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. There's good days and bad days and I'm struggling. God will answer that prayer. That's enough about the fourth phrase. I believe, help my unbelief. Well, here's the principle. God will help our unbelief 100% of the time if we go to him and confess our need for his help. God always graciously ministers to our needs. Let's look at the fifth phrase, only by prayer. So at the end of the story, what you noticed is that after they leave the village, that they come back to the residence where they're staying. And Jesus' disciples now come to him, and in private they ask him, because now their mind is whirling. Because Jesus walks in, Jesus talks to the Father, Jesus immediately speaks to the the demon, and it immediately goes out. All Jesus needs to do to exert his authority is to open his mouth and speak. And so the disciples automatically want to know, why couldn't we cast out that demon? And this is a private conversation. It's very simple. Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
So the first faith principle is notice the relationship between faith and prayer. We started with faith, and Jesus points to a lack of faith. Their lack of faith led to an inability. I don't know exactly, like I said, what was the exact reason for the lack of faith. The scriptures don't make it clear. But notice how Jesus brings everything back around, and notice the relationship between faith and prayer and how it fits hand in glove. Jesus points to their lack of faith, and when they ask, why couldn't we cast it out, he says, it's prayer. Now, did they not? We don't know once again here. Is it representative that they weren't having a regular time or communion with God? Maybe they didn't have, they haven't established that yet. Remember how the disciples, they don't really know how to pray. They ask Jesus, they teach us how Jesus to pray. Because they see Jesus in a regular pattern of prayer, but maybe that's not representative of their own lives, right? Is that true for some of us? Like we come on Sundays, we know the truth, but if you actually ask me about how I, I spend time enjoying God in prayer, here's the reality, I think, for all of us. We struggle. We, we struggle for what we know to be true to be walked out in our prayer life. So Jesus points to prayer, and there's a direct relationship that the one who has faith prays. And prayer is the context. It's like the playing field where our faith is worked out, right? Right? If you think about two teams, when they come together, they play in an arena. They play on a pitch. There's a place where, where sports games take place. When you want to know where in the arena of faith where it gets walked out, prayer. Prayer is the arena where you, you show your faith. You pray God's promises. You spend time with him, and you confess the fact, God, if it's going to happen, it must be you. And I, I want to submit that when I pray I'm not just claiming things in faith. When I'm praying, I'm submitting my will to yours, and I'm saying not my will, but yours. So prayer is this arena where faith gets worked out. And when you're praying to God, we're saying, God, not my way, but your way. And if you desire to do this, then I'm asking you, but I'm submitting my will to you. And so we have to have a theology when we think about prayer that moves from praying about what I want in faith to praying for the faith to allow God's will to be carried out and for me to grow in faith to accept how God works his perfect plan, which does include seasons of suffering. And it does include discouragement, anxiety, and cameras even transparent, eating disorders. Or have you had thoughts of suicide? Or have you, have, have, have you had to rely on meds to get through your seasons of discouragement? Have you been there? Well, here's how we work out our faith. We pray. And we see that faith and prayer are inseparable in God's plan for us. That there is no true faith without going to God in prayer. And when we pray, what we're doing is simply practicing faith. We're coming and trusting God's promises. So that all brings us to the end of the story. We're going to close and we're going to land the plane. So, let's take a look at an application. If this story is about failure, that is simply, in a sense, an opportunity for us to learn about faith, what are those five principles that we learned? I'll just repeat them again. God works through faith. All things are possible for the one who believes. Can does not equal must. God will help our unbelief. And faith and prayer are inseparable. So here's where I want to end.
Here's what I know. If every single aspect of our faith is walked out, or our, our Christian life is walked out in faith, I know one thing about me, and I know one thing about you. God is working in your life, and he's asking you to walk in faith in some specific area this morning. I don't know what that is, but you do. And I don't mean the faith of like something great. I mean, everything we do, we apprehend by faith. So, I mean, the, the faith to be the witness at work that you need to be. The things that you know I'm probably fudging on because to, in this day and age, it's not so well-liked to be a Christian who believes and confesses the things that the Scriptures say. Maybe that's the step of faith. Maybe it's something more significant. Maybe it's faith to take a, a step uh, into a new season. I don't know what it is, but here's what I know. Every single person here is wrestling with God about some specific aspect of trusting what they know about God and his character and applying it to your practical life. So my question to you is, what is God saying to you about faith this morning? What is God saying to you about faith this morning? My follow-up question is, what do you need to do today? Not tomorrow, not next week, not next season, or I'll try when I, I have another opportunity. I mean, today, what do you need to do? That's a private conversation between you and God. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict or to show, to open your eyes, what you need to do, what steps you need to take. And here's how I'll close. I don't know if you've had the joy, I'm pretty sure you have, of going to the bakery and smelling fresh bread. Have you had that? I love being in Germany, the land of bread, the land of bakeries. There's something beautiful about fresh. Let me tell you one thing I know about the bakery. They don't serve you yesterday's bread. Well, not if it's a good one. They don't serve you last week's bread. They don't serve you last year's bread. They serve you fresh bread. How many of you are trying to live on old faith? Stale faith. Things that you trusted God a long time ago. But the reality is, faith is every day. Faith is active Faith is trusting in God today. God desires fresh faith from you. Not faith I trusted and believed 10 years ago. Not faith I moved to Germany a year ago. I mean faith today. God is inviting you to practice and walk out fresh faith. Stale faith don't cut it. You go to a bakery and see if they sell you old bread. And I'll tell you how long they'll stay in business. And when it comes to the church, God wants fresh faith. If you show up in a church with a bunch of old, stale faith, I bet you run from that place. I don't want stale bread. I don't think you do either. But when we come to God, this isn't to talk about a silly illustration. God is worthy, worthy of our faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all that we have to give. You are worthy of our trust. We, bring it, we believe it brings you great glory when we exhibit faith in you. God, in the words of this father as we read in this passage, God, we believe, but help our unbelief. Give us hearts to want to run after you so that we might, we might walk in your goodness, we might walk in your ways, and the world around us would see a testimony of the great and good and loving God that we serve.
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.